the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with David Duell. Dr. Duell is the author of Disability in Mission, the Church's Hidden Treasure. I should say that uh, Dr. Duell is the co-author of the book along with Nathan G. John. And the foreword is written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Again, Disability in Mission, the Church's Hidden Treasure. Treasure that's coming up later this hour. So looking forward to that conversation. Well, today, September 17th is Constitution Day. One wonders how many Americans are going to take notice. After all, there, no one's getting a day off. There aren't any mattress sales. Nobody's ever uh, got insta famous talking about this founding document. But maybe that needs to change this 17th day of September. Ours is the oldest written constitution in the world. It's an ingenious document crafted by some of the greatest minds of their generation. In a culture that worships the present, the latest trend or the latest video gone viral, it's easy to understand yet no less frustrating to see how timeless principles draw criticism as out of step with the times. Well, the founding fathers, and I'm referring to the founding fathers of the Constitution, set out to establish a government on the principle that the purpose of government was to protect the God-given inalienable rights of the people. Knowing that same power to protect our rights could be used to trample them, they put in place a system to limit the authority of the federal government. Now, I dare you to read the document, take a look uh, at our government today and see if it's even vaguely resembling what the uh, founding intent was. Well, the seemingly endless campaign season is in full swing, so there's no shortage of people making a lot of noise about the problems in our country. And like every country, we have them. Many have sought to score political points, attacking provisions of the Constitution, like the Electoral College, most having very little understanding of its purpose in a constitutional republic. No nation is perfect, including the United States, but our Constitution isn't the problem. I think it's the solution. If there is a problem related to our Constitution, it's that too few of us, too many of our fellow citizens have no idea what it says. A constitutionally illiterate people elect constitutionally illiterate representatives who make constitutionally illiterate decisions. How else do you explain U.S. senators asking judicial nominees about their personal religious beliefs, despite a strict prohibition on a religious test for office? The problem isn't isolated to federal government. While states and cities may provide more protection for the rights of their citizens than what is found in the U.S. Constitution, they may never provide less. The Bill of Rights is a floor, not a ceiling. A quick scan of First Liberty Institute's um, uh, list of clients, Alliance Defending Freedom's list of clients, uh, state and local governments are violating the religious liberties of Americans from coast to coast. That's a result of constitutional illiteracy. Well, the state of Oregon essentially bankrupted the family business of Aaron and Melissa Klein because their religious beliefs compelled them to refer a same-sex couple to another bakery. In Washington, Coach Joe Kennedy was fired by a Beaverton, a rather Bremerton school district for taking a knee in silent prayer after a football game. In the village of Airmont, New York, Orthodox Jews have to seek and receive approval, which never seems to be granted, from the local government to host worship in their own homes. 
The only thing worse than not knowing what's in the Constitution is knowing things that aren't actually in the Constitution. To hear some pundits today is to believe the First Amendment right to free speech applies only until that speech offends someone and the First Amendment right to freely exercise one religion exists only in the minds of the faithful or at best within the four walls of a church or synagogue if they'll permit you to actually have one. Our founders expected we, the people, would be the first guardians of our own liberty. And how can we defend our rights if we don't know what they are? Constitutional ignorance is an existential threat to our republic. The founding document is essentially a contract between the government and the governing. If neither party understands the terms of a contract, it becomes impossible to enforce. If we're unwilling to protect the Constitution, it's unable to protect us. It's no coincidence that while America is young by comparison to the rest of the community of nations, it is the most free and prosperous. If we are to remain so, we must make every day Constitution Day, learn it, live it, apply it, and hold those in positions of authority in a representative republic like ours accountable for what it says. Today, Constitution Day. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, President Trump issued a full-throated call for resignations and changes in management at the New York Times during a fiery rally in Democratic-leaning New Mexico last night after a paper published a bombshell allegation of sexual misconduct against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh before later acknowledging under pressure that the alleged victim said she had no recollection of the event, refused to be interviewed, and has made no other comment. Well, the slew of Democrats running for president who quickly called for Kavanaugh's impeachment over the weekend based on the Times reporting indicated later on Monday they weren't backing down despite the Times major revision of the story. It didn't matter if it was true or not or whether or not the victim says she was in fact a victim. I call for the resignation of everybody at the New York Times involved in the Kavanaugh smear story. And while you're at it, the Russian witch hunt hoax which is just a phony story, the president said at the rally. They've taken the old gray lady so prestigious and broken her down, destroyed her virtue and ruined her reputation. She can never recover and will never return to greatness under current management. The Times is dead. Long live the New York Times. End quote. Well, the New York Times reporters behind the controversial piece of uh, on Justice Kavanaugh claimed in an interview to, uh, Monday night, rather, that key details missing from the sexual misconduct allegation may have been removed from the original draft in the editing process. The piece by Robin uh, Progren and uh, Kate Kelly was adapted from their forthcoming book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, an investigation. Both insisted in an interview that key information at the center of the uproar over their story was included in their original draft of the piece. One of them then explained that the Times doesn't usually include names of victims and that she believed that when the editors removed the name, the crucial information that the alleged victim didn't remember the incident was also removed. So I think it was just sort of an editing, you know, done in the haste of the editing process, she added. Mm, Not really good enough. Meanwhile, Israelis are voting in an unprecedented repeat election that will decide whether, well, uh, the longtime prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, stays in power. The polls are now closed, and they think he's probably going to eke by, but that's not the end of the story. Against the prospect of a likely indictment on corruption charges, Netanyahu is seeking a fifth term. He faces a stiff challenge from retired military chief Benny Gantz, whose centrist blue and white party is running even with Netanyahu's Likud. Both parties could struggle to form a majority coalition with smaller allies, though, forcing them into a potential unity government. It's the second election this year after Netanyahu failed to build a coalition following April's 
vote and dissolved parliament. Well, Iran was the staging ground for the weekend attacks on the massive Saudi Arabia oil field, according to U.S. intelligence. That was shared with the kingdom, a report said. The Wall Street Journal, citing unnamed sources, reported that the intelligence report that was not shared publicly indicated that Iran raided the massive oil field with at least a dozen missiles and 20 drones. The State Department did not immediately respond to an after-hours email for clarification, but the journal's uh, report said that a Saudi official indicated that the U.S. intelligence was not definitive. The official told the paper that the U.S. did not provide enough evidence to prove without a doubt that Tehran's hand was involved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. David Duell. He's the author of Dis- co-author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. That's coming up shortly. Well, the White House has instructed two former aides to President Trump not to appear at a House Judiciary Committee hearing, saying Rick Dearborn and Rob Porter are absolutely immune from testifying at what the panel is calling its first impeachment hearing. In a letter sent to the panel and obtained by the Associated Press, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone wrote that the Justice Department had advised and the Trump uh, and Trump has directed Dearborn and Porter to defy subpoenas because of constitutional immunity. Lawyers for both men said they would follow Trump's orders. Former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, who has never worked for the White House, uh, attended the hearing as its sole witness earlier today. We'll talk more about that later. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer made his colorful and proudly outlandish Dancing with the Stars debut on Monday night, wearing a neon green ruffled shirt as he, well, shimmied to the Spice Girls song Spice Up Your Life. In a salsa routine, gifts of Spicer started circulating on social media immediately following his performance. Many people also tweeted their reaction to his bold shirt. His energetic performance concluded with with confetti and he got a standing Ovation from the audience, but the show's judges didn't seem quite so impressed, giving him a total score of 12 out of 30. Oil prices soared after a coordinated attack hit the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil industry on Saturday, forcing the kingdom to cut its oil output in half. According to CNBC, Brent crude for, uh, futures, the international benchmark, rose as much as 19.5 percent to $71.95 per barrel at the open, the biggest jump on record. The contract closed the session up at 14.6 percent at $69.2. Uh, meanwhile, President Trump yesterday intoned that it's certainly looking like Iran sanctions uh, sanctioned the attack as for the logistics of the blitz. Uh, the agents France Press uh, profiled the evolving drone threat. New York Times reporters behind Brett Kavanaugh's story suggest key information was removed by the editors. And the Women's March has cut ties with three inaugural co-chairs after accusations of anti-Semitism rocked the uh, far-left organization, while adding a new one who compared Israel to the Islamic State and another who questioned Israel's legitimacy. Not sure how the shift is an improvement. New York City has uh, says 1.1 million students can skip school for climate strike protest. Uh, This is the same city that wants to ban chocolate milk in schools. And on Friday, the California legislature passed a bill that would force every public university in the state to offer abortion pills to students. The bill now awaits the signature of uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, who supported a previous draft of that bill. And want to stay healthy, both emotionally and physically? Well, researchers from UC San Diego and Yale have some simple advice. Limit the amount of time you spend on Facebook. 
While this may sound like typical anti-social media crankiness from academia, this time they have some impressive research to back up their case. You can check that out um, for more details. And some shortcuts. Uh, Backbencher Democrats will confess that impeachment in the House is deader than a Joe Biden political rally. That's a quote from Representative Matt Gates. And from Eric Erickson, for the record, in the past few years, attacks on the credibility of the Supreme Court have increased. Those attacks skyrocketed after the Obamacare decision in which John Roberts, in his solemnic, uh, uh, sol- solemnic uh, wisdom, decided to split the baby. It signaled that the refs could be roughed up. Ever since, various progressives and their allies in the mainstream media have escalated and amplified attacks on the court because they know John Roberts worries chiefly about the reputation of the court. And from the Wall Street Journal, from some political futures, the partisan um, uh, effort to undermine Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation is an embarrassment to the country, but it is useful in putting the 2020 election stakes in sharp relief. The future of the Supreme Court is on the ballot in Senate races as much as in the presidential race. Again, from the Wall Street Journal. And this uh, finally from House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, all but dismissing the idea of probing Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, We have our hands full with impeaching the president right now, and that's going to take up our limited resources and time for a while. Moderate uh, Democrats scratching their heads. And on this day in history, 1787, the Constitution is completed and signed by a majority of the delegates attending the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. On this day in 1862, the bloodiest day in U.S. military history occurs at the Battle of Antietam, where more than 23,000 are killed or wounded. And on this day in 2004, Barry Bonds becomes the third baseball player to hit 700 career home runs, joining Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth. On this day in 2016, a terrorist begins a two-day bombing spree in and around New York City, leading to 35 injuries but no deaths. And finally, on this day in 2011, Occupy Wall Street begins with hundreds of protesters demonstrating near Wall Street in lower Manhattan. Well, Republican California Representative Paul Cook said Tuesday that he's um, he's not going to seek reelection and will instead run for his county supervisor seat from U.S. representative to county supervisor. Well, Cook was elected to Congress in 2012 and is currently in his fourth term. He'll reportedly announce his campaign to represent the first district of the San Bernardino County Board of Supervisors, according to the L.A. Times. Cook served as mayor of Yucca Valley and in the state legislature before being elected to Congress. He also served as an infantry officer in the the Marines. This all comes as a number of other Republican lawmakers in the House have announced they will not be seeking reelection. Cook is now the 18th House Republican representative to announce they will not seek reelection in 2020. Cook serves on the House Committee on Armed Forces and the House Committee on Natural Resources. Texas Representative Bill Flores says Wednesday said on Wednesday that he will not seek reelection next year for a sixth term in Congress, making him the fifth Texas Republican to announce retirement this election cycle. Texas could very well flip. Republican Texas Representative Kenny uh, Marchant, he announced in late August that he will not seek reelection, making him the fourth federal uh, Republican congressman from the state to retire in the last few weeks. Marchant's retirement came as three other Texas Republican representatives, including Will Hurd, Mike Conaway, and Pete Olson, also recently announced that they will not be seeking reelection as well. Hurd is the only black Republican in the House of Representatives. He said he will not seek reelection in late August, saying he plans to serve my country in a different way. Makes for a very interesting prospect for 2020 in the House.
Meanwhile, the House Judiciary Committee's first hearing as part of its Trump impeachment investigation descended into chaos today as Democrats clashed with a combative Corey Lewandowski, trading insults and accusations with a former Trump campaign manager who refused to answer uh, many of their questions. Lewandowski visibly frustrated committee chairman Jerry Nadler during the Democrats' first question when the witness, in an apparent effort to stall for time, repeatedly asked Nadler to point to the specific section of Robert Mueller's report related to his question. He was determined not to deviate from what had already been said. Lewandowski was following White House orders not to discuss confidential conversations with the president beyond what was already public in the former special counsel's report. Asked by Nadler if he met alone with Trump in June of 2017, Lewandowski said, could you read the exact language of the report? I do not have it available to me. I don't think I need to do that, Nadler shot back. I have limited time. Asked the question again, Lewandowski told Nadler he needed him to refresh his memory of what was in the report. He demanded that Democrats provide him a copy of the report, sending Democratic staffers scrambling to find one. He's filibustering, a frustrated Nadler said. Well, amid the back and forth, the top Republican on the committee, Georgia Representative Doug Collins, moved to adjourn the hearing, forcing a failed voice vote that further delayed the hearing before questioning resumed from others on the committee. Lewandowski later declined to play along with certain questions. New York Democrat Representative Hakeem Jeffries asked Lewandowski if he was Trump's hitman, the bagman, the lookout, or all of the, bu- the above. Lewandowski replied, I think I'm a good-looking man, actually. Lewandowski, uh, considering a run for the Senate in New Hampshire in 2020, had been subpoenaed to testify about Mueller's report. In a reminder of the political backdrop during a recess, the witness tweeted out a link to a website promoting his possible candidacy. There were fireworks from the beginning. Nadler opened by saying the hearing is part of an effort to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment with respect to President Trump. He railed against the White House's efforts to block the testimony of two other former White House uh, aides, former White House uh, aides Rick Dearborn and Rob Porter, who did not show up on orders from the White House. This is a cover up, plain and simple, Nadler said, of the White House's efforts to block Dearborn and Porter's testimony. At another point, Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee told Lewandowski, you are obviously here to block any reasonable inquiry into the truth or not of this uh, administration. Lewandowski fired back that he was unable to give her a question uh, because it wasn't a question, but a rant. During his questioning, Georgia Representative Hank Johnson said, Mr. Lewandowski, you are like a fish being cleaned with a spoon. Uh, it's very hard to get an answer out of you. Well, Democrats repeatedly asked questions about Mueller's report, saying Trump asked Lewandowski to direct then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to limit Mueller's investigation. Trump said that if Sessions would not meet with Lewandowski, then Lewandowski should tell Sessions he was fired. Lewandowski never delivered that message, but asked Dearborn, a former Sessions aide, to do it. Dearborn said he was uncomfortable with the request and declined to deliver it, according to the report. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. David Duell, Disability in Mission. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says that weakness is central to the redemptive plan 
of our all-powerful God. It is the means of success, not failure, when Christians are weak. My next guest is the author of Disability in Mission, and it highlights the needs for the church to see God's purposes through different lenses. Our weakness is God's theater for displaying his strength before a watching world. Throughout the Bible, we see God deliberately choosing people who feel unworthy, unwell, disabled, or otherwise deficient. Moses, Gideon, David, Peter, Paul, each of them had physical, moral, or emotional baggage. But in Christ, paradigms of power and weakness were turned upside down. Well, Disability and Mission is a look at changing the way we look at mission, but also an encouragement that no matter who we are, God desires to use us in our imperfections. He actually delights in those imperfections. Well, David Duell is Senior Research Fellow for the Christian Institute on Disability and serves as catalyst for disability concerns with the Luzon movement. He gained his MA from Cornell and um, Master's in Philosophy and PhD from the University of Liverpool. He is the founding editor for the journal Journal for Christian Institute on Disability, is a member of the United Nations Disability Data Working Group and was appointed Region Disability um, Integration Lead for the Red Cross. He is married, has four adult children, and joins us today to talk about a very special book, Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Georgie. Obviously, this reflects your life work, but I want to ask the fundamental question, what what led you into focusing on the significance of disability in ministry and how we should change our perspective on um, what being able uh, actually looks like? Yes, thank you for asking that question. Uh, like many people, I'm been, I've been strongly influenced by my family. My wife's family served as missionaries in Nigeria until uh, my wife and her two siblings developed malaria, and her sister developed a form of cerebral malaria that left her with a high fever and uh, intellectual disability. So the family came home from the mission field, and uh, through a number of circumstances, they tried to go back to the field. They were not able. Uh, Even in my own life, uh, we have four children, and uh, my second child, uh, Joanna, has Down syndrome. When she was born, we were planning on going to China as missionaries. And uh, I asked the doctor, I said, is this a good idea? Uh, Will I find the medical help I need for her? And he said, I wouldn't. That was a simple response. So our our book is really a a passionate request for mission leaders, uh, mission board leaders, pastors to consider people with disabilities as tools in God's hands. And he works through them rather than in spite of them on the mission field. So a uh, husband or a wife with a disability or one of their children with a disability is not seen as a deficit, but as an asset. You make the point early on in the book that through weakness that we all share in common to varying degrees, that the mission of God is advanced. Um, talk a little bit about how that works, because, again, all of us have a degree of weakness. It's built into us, um, and that that varies in terms of degree, uh, but that is um, used to advance God's mission. Yeah, great, another great question. There, there's a common saying that we should send the best and the brightest to the mission field. Now, I don't deny that we should uh, send the best and the brightest, whatever that means. But uh, this is code for sending the strongest, that is, those that might depend on their looks or their talents. Um, the seeing weakness through the biblical lens, we will look beyond its natural power uh, to, uh, to recognize that only God can enable. 
it's in our dependency, all of us, regardless of whether we have a disability, we have a disease of some sort, or whether we have the, the natural weakness that comes from being created. Uh, God tells us in, the, in Scripture that there's a natural weakness that comes even with creation, and then comes the fall when uh, the world is cursed, the universe is cursed, and there's an additional measure of, of weakness. So at the end of it all, we're very weak, Georgine. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we want to believe that it's through our achievements and degrees and all of these things that we become capable and ready to use when, in fact, God says, I use the weak things of this world and the foolish things. Yeah, yeah. You also make the point that God uses weakness to disable pride. We so often rely on our capacity uh, to give us a sense of our ability to influence and make a difference when, in fact, that may be a, a hindrance to us in some ways. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, in the book, what we've tried to do uh, is create a reasoned appeal, not not a scolding to the people we want to address uh, in mission boards and so on, but a reasoned appeal so that they will see through the stories of the individuals whose testimonies are recorded in the book uh, how God actually used weakness to further the mission and further the work of God and bring glory to God as a result. So for some reason, and I think it's because we take our cues from the culture of the world, Mm -hmm. we've learned to rely on the wrong things, and God calls us back to weakness and his enablement. The book has a foreword by Johnny Erickson Tata and throughout the book, and I really appreciated this. It's not just theoretical, but you tell the stories of individuals who would fall under the category of disabled, according to our definition today, and how God has used them in mission, giving us a glimpse into the possibility as we look around in our congregations at people that we might have assumed are are not in a position to make much of a difference at all. That's correct. In fact, uh, even though we have focused on on missions and uh, cross-cultural missions, this would be true of our churches in the United States for the American listeners and perhaps Canadian listeners. Um, We just don't want to recognize, uh, because we've taken our cues from our culture, that the people with disabilities in our midst are very capable of ministering. God tells us in his word many times that he's gifted everyone in some way. And the goal of the church should be to try to understand and appreciate the giftedness of people with disabilities. And I I would only go back to the example you just provided, Georgine. Johnny Erickson Tata has inspired Mm -hmm. and encouraged so many people through her suffering. And uh, it's her disability that has contributed to her dependency on the Lord, Johnny would say. And as a result, she's able to do these things that those of us who have no disability really cannot do as effectively. In the first two chapters of the book, you focus on passages from Scripture that help us appreciate how weakness, vulnerability, and disability uh, embody the the gospel and describe how weakness is central to the redemptive plan of our all-powerful God. Can you talk a bit about some of the Scriptures that uh, might help us to understand God's, God's plan and purpose in using all of us in our weakness? Yes, I think the best example, because of the detail that's given, is Moses in Exodus 3 through 15. God commissioned Moses to go on a mission to Israel and to Pharaoh as well. Moses, having some form of inability or disability, we really don't know what it was, but we know that there was something. 
he rejected God's dispatch, saying that he was unable to fulfill the mission. God's response focused on his own sovereign control over disability and weakness. God says, who made the deaf and the blind and so forth? God says, I did. And God can overcome weakness because he made the disability in the first place. Regardless, Moses will not speak to God, uh, speak so God accommodates Moses' inability by using Aaron as Moses' mouthpiece. If we go back and ask the question, couldn't God have found a better spokesperson than someone who basically used the excuse of saying, I can't speak because of a disability? Sure, he could have, but God wanted to use Moses with his disability. And so God used Moses and God appointed Aaron. God's the one who suggested Aaron uh, serve as Moses' mouthpiece. He used them to uh, lead Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land where Moses had to stop before going over to the promised land, of course. So just think about this. The man who could not speak publicly to people, first of all, had no trouble speaking with God. Hmm. But what is more, at the end of Moses' life, he wrote two beautiful pieces of lyric poetry, the Song of the Sea and the Song of Moses, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses who could not speak to Israel, sang these songs as he led Israel in worship of God. It's a beautiful beautiful account of weakness because in the end, Moses speaks. He speaks through singing. He speaks through the message of the the songs that he wrote. And God's, God's purpose is accomplished. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Dr. David Duell. He's the co-author, along with Nathan G. John, of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Duell. He's the co-author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure, the foreword written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, in the book, uh, or I should say in our culture, we uh, aspire to be able-bodied, fit, and strong. But you write that there are benefits to weakness or disability, and that may not ring um, easily in the ears of those of us in 21st century America. Tell us what you mean by that, that there, there are benefits to weakness or disability. Probably, thank you, Georgine. Probably the greatest benefit that we are aware of in Scripture is that God enables a person who is weak. He's the one who provides the strength, and ultimately then he receives the glory, and that's his plan. That's the way he's chosen to do things. So, I mean, you you mentioned a number of people in Scripture who experienced God's enabling uh, Joseph, Moses, David, Mm -hmm. Uh, In comparison with Saul, Ruth, Esther, Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, all of these in one place or another talked about how they were inadequate, how they were weak. But what they remind us is none of us are inadequate. In fact, there was a book written uh, back uh, several decades by Francis Schaeffer called No Little People. And his point is there are no little people in God's work, in God's kingdom. He uses everyone, and we can find encouragement in that. You write about um, the idea of healthy vulnerability. Um, What do you mean by that, and how can we cultivate that in a way that is honoring to God and acknowledges the truth of our absolute dependence on Him? Yeah, Healthy vulnerability leaves the door open for God to come in and add His power to a ministry need. So, for example, uh, someone asks us to teach a Sunday school class or someone asks us to go door-to-door witnessing, and 
we're scared. We don't feel like we have the ability, and we're probably right about that. We don't have the ability. But with healthy vulnerability, we leave the door open, and we take the challenge, and we try. And God so often surprises us by enabling us and giving us His strength. In the book, uh, throughout the book, you tell the stories of those who are disabled or less able and how God has used them and called them into ministry. One in particular that I enjoyed was um, the story of Paul Kasanga and Olive Doak. Um, their weakness was the very basis of their service to each other, to Christ, and to the nation of Zambia. Can you tell their story? Yeah, it's a beautiful story, George. Yes. Paul Kasanga was a Zambian leper whose body deteriorated to the point in which he could no longer walk or use what was left of his limbs. Uh, he used basically stubs for fingers to turn the pages of his Bible. But like the Apostle Paul, he was named after God used Paul's weakness to empower him for ministry. Alabdoka was an extraordinary mission woman who came alongside Paul to help him with his preaching, teaching, and counseling married couples. It's interesting. Neither Paul nor Olive ever married, but at the same time, Paul was able to counsel and Olive was able to assist uh, couples who would line up at his tent. And uh, he would sit in his wheelchair, thumbing his Bible with uh, basically stubs for fingers, and he would help them with their needs and their marriage problems. In hindsight, God used them, Paul and Olive, to light the fires of evangelical revival in Zambria that resulted in around 80% of the entire population coming to Christ. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. In Chapter 8, you write about Jeff McNair and um, disability and short-term mission teams, which seems like an impossible combination, and yet you tell the story of Jeff uh, Jeff McNair drawing on his experience on a short-term mission trip that included five people with disability. Yes, Jeff uh, Jeff is a close friend, and Jeff has actually led a number of short-term missions with people that were profoundly disabled. You, you wouldn't imagine that they would be able to get to the place, and yet he takes them to places uh, where it would be difficult to begin with for any of us. And uh, some wonderful stories of the way that God has worked in their lives, not only of the people with disabilities who are given the opportunities, but people who went with them, along with them, and saw what God did through them. It's a wonderful chapter that mm-hmm. Jeff has written. Now, in the book, you're encouraging mission organizations to uh, take a, a more considerate look at those who are less abled um, by today's standard and to see the value in in that fact and in them as individuals and their capacity for ministry. What do you hope that will um, will produce within mission organizations in terms of uh, seeing uh, disabled people as a, a treasure to the church and a treasure to the uh, Great Commission? Yes, that, that is an excellent question. And that is the question that we tried to answer in writing the book. But what I hope these church leaders will see, and we, we write the book passionately and appreciatively of their work. We mm-hmm. don't mean it's not a scolding. No, it's not. It's very respectful. They, we hope that they will see that these people with disabilities were used incredibly on the mission field. And today we have uh, seen such breakthroughs in technology, transportation, communication, um, the common, the average mission board today has a person uh, called uh, personal care, where all that person does is focus on the needs of families, uh, helps them. It's kind of like a human resources position, 
But what they do is they help them with their needs and they help them be successful on the mission field. With, with such a position today, many more people could go with disabilities. And uh, with the help of member care, which is what it's called, uh, they'll succeed. God will use them because it's already happening. I always cite as my favorite example, SIM, uh, and the fact that they have uh, a person doing that very thing. And she wrote one of the final chapters of the book. Uh, Deanna Ritchie uh, is uh, a person that serves in such a role, and she's, she really describes how well we're able to take care of people with disabilities on the mission field today. Yeah. In another chapter, you uh, uh, talk about not necessarily going, but a home-based setting in which someone with disabilities is able to engage in mission. Natalie Flickner's um, multiple disabilities have given her empathy and knowledge that has um, become a strong and powerful advocate for children with disabilities. Tell a bit of her story, uh, which emphasizes the fact that if God is calling you to go, that, that may be the case, but there's also opportunity to stay and engage in mission. Yes, Nat was born a missionary with a missionary's heart. She was also born with a disability, pretty significant disability. But God has used her to reach around the world through writing Sunday school material for people with disabilities in other cultures. And uh, she's an incredible writer. And just this past year, she was able to go on a missions trip. And uh, we all celebrated that major accomplishment where Nat, who had always dreamed of going was able to go finally. Mm. And she'll continue her writing ministry. She's a, an outstanding writer. Well, the book is titled Disability and Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure, and I found it inspiring, um, the possibilities uh, and and to see people with disabilities and those of us, all of us with weakness through different eyes from the perspective that God gives us in Scripture really helps us to recognize the value that each one of us has in the kingdom of God and even in the Great Commission. Uh, the book is written by my guest, uh, Dr. David Duell, and his co-author, Nathan John, the foreword by Johnny Erickson Tata. What do you hope um, this will do in terms of influencing mission organizations in uh, considering uh, and accommodating those with disabilities in mission? I hope, thank you, Georgine, I hope that what happens as a result of people reading the book and talking about the book is that we will allow people with disabilities everywhere in the world, not just on the mission field, but everywhere, to use their God-given gifts to serve the church like they want to do. They are called and gifted, just like the rest mm-hmm. of the population, and they they should be given that opportunity to serve. And so we pray that uh, 10 years from now we'll be able to look back and say we made some progress because there will be more pastors more missionaries, more deacons, more Sunday school teachers, more youth leaders with disabilities serving. Absolutely. And if you doubt it possible, disability and mission, the church's hidden treasure, uh, will provide inspiration and great examples. Uh, Dr. Duell, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me in this show, Georgina. Appreciate it. A lot. By the way, the book is uh, published by Hendrickson, and you should be able to find that online. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Today's program, produced by um, James Blend, engineered by Clark Hilton. Done the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1,787. This is the last line of the U.S. Constitution. And today, of course, is Constitution Day. Signers of the Constitution, James McHenry, noted in his diary that after Ben uh, Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, he was asked by Mrs. Elizabeth Powell of Philadelphia, 
Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defined republic as exercise of the sovereign power is lodged in representatives elected by the people. To help explain democracy has come to have two definitions. One is the general concept of people ruling themselves, and the other is an actual system of government. As an actual system of government, a democracy is where the people are king ruling directly, whereas a republic is where the people are king ruling through their representatives. As an actual system of government, a democracy only successfully worked on a small basis like a Greek city-state where every citizen went to the marketplace every day to discuss politics. Politics is from the Greek word polis, which means the business of the city. The same word translated into Latin is civics. Well, it was also contrasted with the word subject. Kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. Citizens is a Greek word that means co-ruler, co-sovereign, co-king. Citizens participate in ruling themselves. Well, democracy as a system of government is limited in size as Once a city grows so large that citizens cannot come to the marketplace every day, uh, then uh, it is transferred to those who carry news of what's being discussed, which can be slanted one way or another. Republics can grow larger as citizens spend their time taking care of their families and farms and representatives go to their place to the marketplace every day to discuss politics. We live in a republic. A constitutional republic is where the representatives are limited by a set of rules approved by the citizens. Theodore Roosevelt, in October of 1903, stated, In no other place and at no other time has the experiment of government of the people, by the people, for the people, been tried on so vast a scale as here in our country. Americans pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Citizens are basically pledging allegiance to being in charge of themselves, exercising their authority through representatives they pick. When someone protests the flag, what they're saying is, I no longer want to be king. I protest this system where the people rule themselves. In the Roman Republic, representatives were hereditary positions. The American Republic is a hybrid where representatives are democratically elected. Yale President Ezra Stiles stated back in 1788 that most states of all ages have been founded in rapacity, usurpation, and injustice. In the forms of civil polity, they've been tried by mankind except one, and that seems to have been reserved in Providence to be realized in America. John Jay, who was the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, stated in September of 1777, the Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of deliberating upon and choosing the form of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Ronald Reagan stated in 1961, in this country of ours, took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Well, Declaration signer James Wilson, who also signed the Constitution and was appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington, remarked at Pennsylvania's ratifying convention in November of 1787, Governments in general have been the result of force, of fraud, and accident. After a period of 6,000 years has lapsed since the creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding calmly concerning that system of governments under which they would wish they uh, wish that they and their posterity should live. John Adams wrote in his notes on canon and feudal law in 1765, 
I always consider the settlement of America with reverence as the opening of a grand scene and design in providence for the illumination of the ignorant and the emancipation of the slavish part of mankind all over the earth. In 1802, Daniel Webster stated in a 4th of July oration, the history of the world is before us. The civil, the social, the Christian virtues are requisite to render us worthy the continuation of that government which is the freest on earth. Well, after the U.S. Constitution was written, it needed to be ratified by nine states in order to go into effect. Eight states had ratified it, and New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth. But disagreements caused it to stall. The governor of New Hampshire declared a day of fasting. New Hampshire reconvened its ratifying convention on June of 1788. Harvard President Reverend Samuel Langdon gave an address which was instrumental in convincing the delegates to ratify the Constitution, a pastor. The Portsmouth Daily Evening Times, January 1st, 1891, acknowledged Reverend Samuel Langdon's influence. By his voice and example, he contributed more, perhaps, than any other man in the favorable action of that body, end quote. Langdon's address was titled, The Republic of the Israelites, an Example of the American States, June 5th, 1788. In it, he stated, among other things, Instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union and see this application plainly. That as God in the course of his kind providence hath given you an excellent constitution of government, founded on the most rational, equitable, and liberal principles by which all that liberty is secured, and you are empowered to make righteous laws for promoting public order and good morals. And as he has moreover given you by his son Jesus Christ a complete revelation of his will— It will be your wisdom to adhere faithfully to the doctrines and commands of the gospel and practice every public and private virtue. He continued, The Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages. Government on Republican principles required laws, without which it must have degenerated immediately into absolute monarchy. How unexampled was this quick progress of the Israelites from abject slavery, ignorance, and almost total want of order to a national establishment perfected in all its parts far beyond all other kingdoms and states, from a mere mob to a well-regulated nation under a government and laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. He concluded, it was a long time after the law of Moses was given before the rest of the world knew anything of government by law. It was 600 years after Moses before Grecian republics received a very imperfect code of laws uh, from Lycurgus. It was about 500 years from the first founding of the celebrated Roman Empire before the first law of that empire. Well, after his address, New Hampshire's delegates voted to ratify the U.S. Constitution, thus putting it into effect. Professors Donald Lutz and Charles Hyman, uh, they published an article in American Political Science Review in 1984 titled The Relative Influence of European Writers on Late 18th Century American Political Thought. They examined nearly 15,000 writings of the 55 writers of the U.S. Constitution, including newspaper articles, pamphlets, books and monographs, and discovered that the Bible, especially the book of Deuteronomy, contributed 34 percent of all direct quotes made by the founders. When indirect Bible citations were included, the percentage rose even higher. Benjamin Franklin wrote to the editor of the Federal Gazette in April of 1788, um, I beg I may not be understood um, in, uh, to infer that our general convention was divinely inspired when it formed the new federal constitution. Yet I must own I have so much faith in the general government of the world by providence that I can hardly conceive of transaction of such momentous importance to the welfare of millions now existing 
and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass without being in some degree influenced, guided and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their being. Alexander Hamilton wrote of the Constitution in his letters In 1787, whether the new constitution, if adopted, will prove adequate to such desirable ends, time, the mother of events, will show. For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system which, without the finger of God, never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. We're talking about Constitution Day on this, the anniversary of the Constitution. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. 1787, the Constitution is completed. It's signed by a majority of the delegates attending the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and this has been designated as Constitution Day. Ours is the oldest written Constitution in the world. It's an ingenious document crafted by some of the greatest minds of their generation. In a culture that worships the present, however, the latest trend or the latest video game um, gone viral, it's easy to understand... um, although frustrating, to see how timeless principles draw criticism as uh, out of step with the times. The founders set out to establish a government on the principle that the purpose of government was to protect the God-given inalienable rights of the people. Knowing the same power to protect our rights could be used to trample them, they put in place a system to limit the authority of the federal government. Well, if you were to read the document today, you'd find that government today Um, does not do um, a very good job of reflecting those original principles. George Washington opened the Constitutional Convention stating, let us raise a standard to which the wise and the honest can repair. The event is in the hand of God. Harry Truman uh, wrote in his memoir, Volume 2, Years of Trial and Hope, the men who wrote the Constitution knew that tyrannical government had come about where the powers of government were united in the hands of one man. The system they set up was designed to prevent a demagogue or a man or on horseback from taking over the powers of government. The most important thought expressed in our Constitution is that the power of government shall always remain limited through the separation of powers. Well, 10 days after his inauguration, President Washington wrote to the United Baptist Churches of Virginia, if I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed by the convention where I had the honor to preside might possibly endanger the religious rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature to it. President Washington, the same week Congress passed the Bill of Rights, declared, that's in October of 1789, whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness." I do recommend the 26th day of November to be devoted by the people of these United States to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all good that was, that is, and that will be. Washington continued that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed. Poet Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, America is another name for opportunity. Our whole history appears like a last effort of divine providence in behalf of the human race. G.K. Chesterton wrote 
in what is America, what I saw in America, 1922. America is the only nation in the world that is founded on creed. That creed is set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are equal in their claim to justice, that governments exist to give them that justice. It wasn't always uh, applied equally, as we know, given our history. But he went on to say the declaration certainly does condemn atheism since it clearly names the creator as the ultimate authority from whom these equal rights are derived. Daniel Webster stated, miracles do not cluster. That which has happened but once in 6,000 years cannot be expected to happen often. Hold on, my friends, to the constitution of your country and the government established under it. Such a government, once destroyed, would have a void to be filled perhaps for centuries with evolution and tumult, riot and deposition. James Madison wrote in September of 1829, The happy union of these states is a wonder, their constitution a miracle, their example the hope of liberty throughout the world. Woe to the ambition that would, that, that would uh, meditate the destruction of either. And U.S. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge stated in 1919, The United States is the world's best hope. Beware how you trifle with your marvelous inheritance, for if we stumble and fall, freedom and civilization everywhere, everywhere will go down in ruin. Well, that might be something of, a, of an overstatement, but again, these are quotes from the Times surrounding the founding of the Republic this Constitution Day. Wanted to spend a few minutes reflecting on that. Well, the state isn't uh, here to give you everything you want, not even what you want in extraordinarily popular with your fellow Americans. Well, David Harsinyi writes that this is no doubt disorienting for voters who grew up believing they live in a democracy. In reality, our undemocratic constitutional bulwarks temper the vagaries of the majority. Had every Athenian citizen been a, a, a Socrates, James Madison quipped, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. Well, the left will mock you for making this obvious observation, yet many progressives don't seem to understand the distinction between United States and United, a United State. MSNBC's Chris Hayes, for instance, recently took some heat from conservatives for claiming that the weirdest thing about the Electoral College is the fact that if it wasn't specifically in the Constitution for the presidency, it would be unconstitutional. Of course, there's nothing weird about diffused democratic institutions. There's nothing weird about arguing for federalism. These should be the foundation for every policy debate. Every governing institution in the country, to some degree, is counter-majoritarian. Quite often, the counter-majoritarianism is the entire point. Hayes is under the impression that one man, one vote means every ballot needs to be uh, plugged into a direct democracy, which is absurd. He doubled down on democracy by arguing that conservatism is a movement deeply paranoid and pessimistic about its own appeal, increasingly retreating behind counter-majoritarian institutions, the Senate, the court, the Electoral College, and that it was deeply revealing that the entire conservative movement gets hashtag triggered if you say the simple truth about the Electoral College, end quote. Well, it's not a simple truth, is it? For one thing, progressives increasingly view voting as the most sacred and determinative act of a citizen and see any counter-majoritarianism as unnatural and unfair. One of these people is obviously Hayes. Otherwise, why frame reliance on the constitutional process of all three branches, no less, as a retreat? If a person believes that counter-majoritarian institutions are a place to hide, is it's reasonable to conclude that he believes majoritarianism is the high moral ground, the best place to fight. 
Sadly, few will probably argue that people are increasingly retreating into that uh, fact, although in a constitutional republic, that would be a proper political insult. Of course, it's also true many of these political grievances are situational. Liberals had no problems with anti-majoritarianism when courts concocted a right to an abortion. It is only a problem for them when courts protect free speech or gun rights or stop partisans from coercing Americans to join their groups. It's only when Democrats lose presidential elections that fixing the Electoral College becomes imperative. It's only when the Supreme Court skews toward originalism that we have to figure out a better way to appropriate Senate seats or pack the courts. Still, the majoritarian instinct has always been stronger on the left. At one point, it was driven by important notions of self-determination. Today, the post-liberal left sees democracy as a way to steamroll the knuckle-dragger in compliance. It's no surprise then that Republican Alexandria, or, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will openly grouse that Republicans are now arguing that the U.S. isn't and shouldn't be a democracy. Ocasio-Cortez surely understands basic civics. She must know that a national democracy is far more likely to corrode the civil rights of individuals than our Republican institutions. And that's Republican with a small r, not the party. She must have learned that direct democracy encourages a mob mentality. Surely she understands that counter-majoritarian institutions featured in every free nation help restrain the worst impulses of partisanship and protect the nation from the whim of the electorate. These are the reasons Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives support majoritarianism. Without it, national socialistic projects like the Green New Deal can ever exist. They need a one-party system. Nothing relies more on emotionalism. Uh, scaremongering and the common impulse of passion more uh, than that. One wishes Ocasio-Cortez took a more honest approach, like left-wing commentator Matthew Dowd, who recently came out against the Constitution and Christianity as well, arguing that texts written 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago should not control our ability to advance the human race and do what needs to be done in the 21st century to create a more enlightened community based on, in, uh, based on justice and compassion for all. Enduring notions about liberty and minority rights, due process, the right to free expression and self-defense, to name a few, do nothing to inhibit technological, economic or moral progress. The opposite, in fact, is the case. The history of the United States is the proof. Although some people will argue, even this atheist, the writer of the article, that in the long view, Christianity has done more to advance the human race than any other philosophy. No one is coercing anyone to participate in mass. Dowd, on the other hand, believes all of us should be strong-armed into adhering to his enlightened ideas. Dowd, in fact, is the kind of person the Constitution was written to stop. If his loaded contentions about what needs to be done to enforce his conception of compassion and justice are in conflict with the enlightened, they aren't American ideals. There's something new, and no doubt Dowd and others like him believe themselves better equipped than Hamilton and Madison to determine how an enlightened community should be governed. Call it quixotic, but I remain skeptical. Something to think about on Constitution Day. All right, we're going to move on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York City Council is seeking to repeal a citywide counseling ban out of concern that the ban would survive Supreme Court 
um, scrutiny and would impact similar counseling bans across the United States. You might recall back in 2017, the council passed an ordinance that prohibits counseling to reduce or eliminate unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion for a fee. Now, the citywide ordinance is unprecedented in that it applies to adults who are voluntarily seeking counsel. Most of them deal with young people, but this with adults as well who may seek that kind of uh, counsel. The constitutionality of the ban is being challenged by a lawsuit, and if the challenge reaches the Supreme Court, the city council is afraid that an unfavorable decision for the counseling ban that could uh, block similar laws across the country. So the state of New York has a counseling ban that applies to minors only, to which New York City is going to remain bound, even if the city's broader counseling ban is repealed. Well, Liberty Council is uh, challenging the uh, ban in uh, New York, in Florida, Maryland, New Jersey, California, in Tampa. They're awaiting a decision on a motion for summary judgment asking a federal court to permanently block the city of Tampa's counseling ban that violates the First Amendment by prohibiting licensed counselors from providing talk therapy to minors who are seeking help to reduce or eliminate their unwanted same-sex attraction, behaviors, identity, and so on. Like the New York ban, the Tampa ordinance imposes significant monetary fines on counselors who provide this uh, counseling uh, to those who come to them voluntarily. Repealing the New York City counseling ban ordinance is a step in the right direction, they uh, argue, that, but it's not a ma- only a matter of time uh, before one of these counseling bans is struck down by the Supreme Court According to Matt Staver, he went on to say that the law is a gross intrusion into the fundamental rights of counselors and clients. Every person should have access to the counselor of his or her choice. No government has the authority to prohibit a form of counseling simply because it does not like the religious or moral belief of a particular counselor or a client. So this is an issue that is still very much in play in terms of whether or not... uh, Uh, It's going to be permitted in places across the country. Well, we learned that dozens of Uber and Lyft drivers here in Portland were allowed to drive for the ride-sharing service, despite the fact that their driving history or criminal records should have disqualified them from doing so. One woman who served prison time for felony assault with intent to murder worked as a Lyft driver in Portland for more than a year. Another Lyft driver had been convicted of sexual assault in the second degree. He drove Lyft passengers for roughly five months. A review of uh, Portland Bureau of Transportation records found that 168 cases during the past five years in which the city inspectors suspended or revoked an Uber or Lyft driver's permit because of criminal or um, driving history. Well, these drivers should have been rejected by Uber and Lyft during routine background screenings, but instead they slipped through the cracks. The drivers weren't flagged until several months later when the city of Portland conducted a secondary background screening or a spot check. We're catching people who shouldn't be driving. A spokesperson for the Portland Bureau of Transportation says, well, nationwide, both Uber and Lyft, they're facing increased scrutiny over safety concerns and the effectiveness of their background checks. A CNN investigation back in April found 103 Uber drivers had been accused of sexual assault or abuse in the last four years. Lyft is now facing a flurry of lawsuits that are related to rides that allegedly ended with rape or sexual assault. We don't think they're uh, doing enough. Uh, an attorney for um, in San Francisco said uh, a law firm that's litigating more than 100 cases against Uber and Lyft, many of which involved alleged assaults. Uh, just about every one of our clients has said their biggest concern is making sure uh, this doesn't happen to someone else. Well, the records obtained from the city of Portland through a public records request indicate that 78 Uber drivers should have been disqualified because of their driving history. The city flagged 17 Uber drivers uh, who had suspended licenses within the previous three years. 
43 Uber drivers had two or more traffic violations within the past year. And the degree to which they uh, had uh, traffic violations isn't clear. Five drivers got past Uber's background checks despite not having a valid driver's license at all. Lyft had 90 drivers in Portland who uh, should have been disqualified, according to city records. 53 Lyft drivers had two or more traffic violations within the past uh, year, and 24 had their license suspended within three years of applying to drive. Two Lyft drivers got passed a background check despite having felony convictions in the mid uh, to late 1990s. Well, under an agreement with the ride-sharing companies, the city can't say exactly how many drivers are permitted to drive for the uh, to providers in Portland, but the city can say there are roughly 10,000 rideshare and taxi drivers uh, operating in the Portland area. A spokesman for Lyft confirmed both drivers with felony records should not have been uh, approved uh, to drive for Lyft. The drivers were removed from the platform in March of uh, last year after the misconvictions were brought to Lyft's attention. They also explained that um, Sterling, a third-party company that conducted driver application background checks for the company, missed those convictions. They've since ended that uh, contract. Um, but again, the city of Portland providing some oversight, even though it's not quite in real time. Also, motor vehicles departments around the United States are taking drivers' personal information and selling it to a range of businesses, including private investigators, uh, generating millions of dollars in revenue, according to a scathing new report. According to Motherboard, which obtained hundreds of pages of documents from DMVs through public records requests, members of the public are likely not even aware of the data they're obligated to provide as being sold in some instances. Private investigators specifically advertise their um, they'll uh, surveil uh, spouses to see if they're cheating. You need to learn what they're um, what they've been doing, when they've been doing it, who they've been doing it with and how long it's been going on. You need to see proof with your own eyes, says the website of Integrity Investigations, one private investigator company that has purchased data from DMVs. Well, the Virginia DNV has sold uh, data to 109 private investigative firms, while in New Jersey, their Motor Vehicle Commission has sold data to 16 private investigation firms, according to spreadsheets viewed by Motherboard. Well, in addition, records obtained by the news outlet revealed that the Wisconsin DMV made more than $17 million selling drivers' data. Other companies, including consumer credit reporting agencies, Experian and research company LexisNexis, they've also been beneficiaries of DMV data. Beyond basic privacy concerns, one expert points out that there could be big implications for someone fleeing an abusive situation. The selling of personally identifying information to third parties is broadly a privacy issue for all and specifically a safety issue for some. Uh, That from the director of an organization overseeing the protection of those in violent situations. As uh, Motherboard notes, and that, again, is the organization that uh, provided this information, the data being sold varies depending on state, but it usually includes a person's name and address. In some cases, it also includes their date of birth, their zip code, and phone number. The Driver's Privacy Protection Act of 1994, which was meant to restrict access to DMV data, has a range of exemptions, including for the sale of information to private investigators. Now, who benefits from the money uh, generated by the DMV is not altogether clear, uh, but it is disturbing to consider that one's data is being made available in such a way.
Speaking of studies, when it comes to teen dating, a new study found that students not in a romantic relationship have stronger social skills, were less depressed than their peers. The Journal of School Health published a study from surveys based on research of 594 students in the 10th grade and concluded that students who weren't dating had uh, significantly higher teacher ratings on social skills and leadership. Additionally, it found that those students also had lower ratings of depression compared to peers who were dating. All students had similar scores of positive relationship with friends and showed no difference in frequency of suicidal thoughts. The majority of adolescents who were involved in romantic relationships by middle adolescents used a broad definition that included spending time with or going out with someone for more than a month. The study confirmed that teens who don't conform to a dating in adolescence end up faring well and perhaps better than their peers in romantic relationships. The authors of the study explain that dating in adolescence is considered normative behavior and that these relationships could provide a valuable opportunity for important developmental tasks like identity formation and experimentation, uh, but it doesn't always work out quite that way. So again, the headline, teens who don't date may be more well-adjusted and less depressed than those who do. By the way, today, Israelis went to the polls in a tense rematch election that could end the career of Israel's longest-serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's leveraged his strong relationship with President Trump to achieve a long list of accomplishments, but polls show he was neck-and-neck in the... uh, uh, with the Blue and White Party led by Benny Gantz, his opponent. We'll have the outcome of that election, I expect, sometime tomorrow, as ballots are currently being counted. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned last week, missionary leaders from over 34 countries convened at the Museum of the Bible on Monday morning to launch the AD 2020. It's the uh, first of its kind evangelical initiative that's endorsed by the Roman Catholic Pope Francis. Well, the movement is a collaborative effort of like-minded organizations aimed at affirming and promoting the value of the Bible for all people and calls poverty at a a uh, time when over 1,600 languages lack New and Old Testament translation, uh, a real concern. Well, the movement also seeks to restore the significance of the Bible in traditionally Christian Western cultures, while children are increasingly uh, less and less exposed to the gospel or biblical worldview. Organizers hope that the global year of the Bible is going to ultimately spur momentum to make the 2020s the decade of the Bible. Many of us have envisioned AD 2020 global year of the Bible as a catalyst for perhaps a second reformation that centered around the uh, uh, the word of, of God and grace, the power of and the wisdom of his word. That's a quote from um, Lloyd Estrada. He's the global advocate for Bible engagement with the World Evangelical Alliance. Um, in and they exist in some 130 countries. By the grace of his Holy Spirit, we can make this happen, he went on to say. Well, as part of the initiative, several stadium-sized events are going to be organized by various organizations in which thousands are coming to pray and to worship. They're also going to facilitate partnerships between like-minded organizations worldwide to accelerate Bible literacy efforts, along with this um, uh, effort to organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators, Youth with a Mission, American Bible Society, Call to All and others, uh, had representatives there to launch the event in the nation's capital this week. Over 500 leaders and organizations from 200 countries are endorsers of AD 2020, Global Year of the Bible. 
The 600 million evangelicals in local churches all over the world are the potential partners of the plans, the resources, the programs, and the partnerships for AD 2020's Global Year of the Bible, Estrada told leaders during the event. With a local church, the effectiveness of this year could be limitless. And while there have been Year of the Bible efforts held in the past, such as the National Year of the Bible declared by U.S. President Ronald Reagan, there's never been an initiative like this held on a global scale, according to Call to All President Mark Anderson, who was a guest on this program just last week. AD 2020 Global Year of the Bible is a way uh, is way more comprehensive, he says. Uh, he's conducted over 2,000 evangelistic campaigns on five continents. We are so much further down the road to expanding the Word of God in so many different forms and oral presentations. This is the largest effort in relation to Scripture. Well, he explained that the initiative came to fruition as a result of hundreds of global leaders talking for years about how to help people engage the Scriptures once the Scriptures are translated into their language whether that's um, an oral tradition or written form. Many who will benefit from certain translations, he said, speak languages that are only verbally communicated. As we talked around the Bible translation, the remaining needs of, are unreached for a reason, Wycliffe Bible Translator President John Chestnut says. There's not a lot of low-hanging fruit out there any longer. It's going to take creative strategies, and it's going to continue to take prayers and men and women who are willing to be courageous to reach the last, the least, and the lost. Well, six goals of AD 2020 Year of the Bible, the movement are prayer, translation, publication, distribution, education, and motivation to engage um, uh, with God's Word. The discussion has been going on for at least two decades of many of hundreds of us talking about this, and we just started formalizing it about uh, a short time ago. Well, within all the different entities, different organizations and Bible societies in different countries, they have uh, different roles within their geographic areas, and it makes them quite measurable. We're measuring together to get the translation work done in every language, and then we will have the Bible available um, uh, all over the world geographically with click, uh, with click. I can't say it right. Wycliffe uh, predicts that translating partner organizations uh, will have 99% of the translation in the New and Old Testaments by 2033, which is just a little over 13 years away. Bishop uh, Ephraim Tendero, who's Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, said during the event that sites can't be lost on today's generation growing up in countries that have traditionally Christian heritages, such as the United States, Today, in cultures that have been historically Christian, an increasing number of young people are growing up without exposure to the Bible at all. They do not learn about the Bible in schools. In fact, they do not hear any reference in popular culture about the Bible. And when they hear a reference that relates to the Bible, they have no connection because they don't know. If they go to church, um, they may not even read the Bible there. But in many cases, they have not read the Bible at all. Young people are seeking fulfillment in their careers or entertainment or drugs without knowing that the Bible promises greater fulfillment through a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ even said that I come so that you may have life and enjoy life to its fullness. Tragically, they're seeking meaning in other ways and giving the message of God's spiritual salvation is a challenge. The only message that enables us to discover lasting meaning for this life and beyond. Well, he stated that the international Christian community should be doing anything that can restore the awareness of the Bible and its significance to help culture recover what has been lost before it's too late. Nick Hall, who's the founder of Pulse and visionary behind the Together 2016 gathering of thousands of Christians on the National Mall, said that the Global Year of the Bible Initiative 
initiative, as uh, he sees it, is a biblically uh, sees the culture as a biblically illiterate generation, and they're rising up. There are men and women who, for them, every year is a year of the Bible. Every year, every day, they wake up. This is my year of the Bible, he said. Think uh, He thinks it is um, exciting to see what may happen. Well, according to Hall, plans are in the works to hold another gathering on the National Mall in 2020, a call for Bible revival. Well, in a recorded video endorsement from the Vatican, Pope Francis praised the Global Year of the Bible initiative and told those leading it um, to be steadfast. To the Christian, I always advise them to carry a pocket gospel, and at any moment they can read a small part of God's Word, the pontiff said in uh, with a translation, but we must be aware of the whole Bible, not just the Gospels, but the whole Bible. The Gospel, or rather, the global year of the Bible, makes us uh, gives us an opportunity for encouragement, and the Lord is going to bless richly. Well, the kickoff took place on Monday, and the year has begun. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Sharon Hode Miller. She's the author of Nice. Well, that sounds pleasant. Nice. Everybody wants to be nice and tries to be nice. But the subtitle of the book is Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Sometimes doing the right thing makes us less, well, lovable. Anyway, we'll talk with her about that. And then on Thursday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with uh, Tom Cole. Uh, Retired Judge uh, Tom Cole is the co-founder of Paid in Full. And this ministry is working with the Oregon State Prison System in ways that are incredible. Corbin University is now involved and they are providing opportunities for those who are incarcerated to receive um, the equivalent of a seminary education. And we're going to talk with him about efforts to raise the funds to make that possible, which, again, is a remarkable part of the story, uh, what the status is of the project and how you might um, follow them and be involved in their efforts as well. So that's coming up on Thursday with Tom Cole, retired uh, Washington County judge. On Friday, I'm going to be speaking at a retreat with my sisters from Branches and Scapoose, so I'll be away from the mic. And uh, I, as far as I know, I think we'll be running the best of the Georgine Rice show until I'm advised otherwise. So that's what's coming up the remainder of this week. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. We appreciate your listening in. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow once again, talking with Sharon Hode Miller. The book, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.